in your bulletin, uh, Psalm 32, very fitting as a, a sermon for the new year. God help us uh, to see how we can live Psalm 32 in 2024. So give your attention to God's word. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile or deceit. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Amen. And then... John 2, verses 1 through 11, the wedding at Cana there. The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. When they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. In the year of our Lord, 2024, I would assume that we all want to be among those whom the Lord calls blessed. Psalm 32 opens by telling us who is blessed. Now, of course, there are Uh, lesser degrees of blessing. All men, whether in Christ or out, have the blessing of life. Many have the blessing of family, and those things truly are 
uh, blessings. That person is blessed who has those. But the chief estate of blessedness, the blessedness of blessedness, right? The highest of blessing is for the man who is described in the first two verses of our psalm. And as we look at this psalm, it's, it, as you kind of open it up and slow down, and um, as you notice, especially in certain psalms you work through, you can't quite tell who's speaking. Right? David writes this psalm, but David, I would argue, is not always the one who is, uh, as it were, the voice that is uh, being communicated through the text. It's as if you get a, 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 um, a sneak or a peek, or children, as we use this word, a, a secret, uh, as we use it this morning, uh, from God, a, a view into a conversation that David had with God. And we know that prayer often feels like that. But what about this blessed man? There are four things said about him there in uh, the beginning of Psalm 32. The first thing that's said about him is his transgression is forgiven. His transgression or his sin is forgiven. So if you want to uh, know who is living in this highest state of blessedness or who this blessed man is, the first thing you must know about him is that he has been forgiven of his sins. The second thing, it's a, a different aspect because uh, there are a multitude of aspects about sin that need to be deal, dealt with, not just forgiven, but cleansed of them. Right? He is covered. His sins are covered. That is to say, those blemishes are no longer seen. Right? That's the second thing about him. His sin is covered. The third is that this man is one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It's a word that we throw around sometimes when we talk about salvation, uh, that we have imputed righteousness from Christ. This word comes from the scriptures. It's, it's kind of like a, um, a banking term. Right? where there has been something placed into one's account. The blessed man is the one who has not, been, uh, has not had sin placed into his account. And the fourth is that this man has no guile or no deceit in his spirit. Notice that this is kind of the only one of the four that is active. Right? The first three are things that he receives, and then the fourth might be described as an outworking of those things. He has his sin forgiven. He has his sin covered. He has not had sin imputed to him. And this is the way he lives. He is not a deceitful man. He's not deceitful even down to his spirit. These things are separate, of course, right? There's four different things mentioned to show the multitude of blessing that it is to know not just the Lord in general, some God, but to know the Lord through Jesus Christ, right? Christ jumps off the pages. His cross, his atonement is all over Psalm 32. It's hard not to see and hear his propitiatory work in this psalm. Yet, even as these things are separate, they are also one. These are not four men. They're not four types of men. They are one man. They are the man or woman that you are in Christ. These things are true of you through the work of Christ. All those aspects about your sin being dealt with, it's not been imputed to you. Your sin has been covered. Your sins have been forgiven. All of those various levels of guilt that God could hold before you 
because of your sin outside of Christ, in Christ they are no longer true of you. And the fruit of that is you live a life lacking deceit. But as I said, as you read through verse, uh, the psalm, there's a, it's like some transitions, right? You're told about this communion with the Lord, basically, that this blessed state that one lives in who has all these things about his sin that's true, who has this life uh, of no deceit that's true. But it, it appears that as, as David moves through the psalm, and David did write this psalm, that that communion with the Lord, that fellowship can be disrupted. There is a hiccup, as it were, that can often happen in the Christian life. One of the uh, contemporary terms we like to use for this is backsliding. It's very much a scriptural reality. When David moves from those first two sentences, those first two verses, he's talking about something totally different. It's as if verses 1 and 2 stand to themselves as declarations. This is what the blessed man is. However, verse 3, when I kept my silence, David wants you to be aware of this practical uh, area of the heart that must be searched. He wants you to be aware before he sets out in the searching of the heart that this disruption can indeed happen. This searching of the heart, though, is, as is sadly uh, the case today, I was talking with someone about this this week, that um, people tend to look down on introspection, right? The Scriptures call us to examine ourselves. They call us to look to Christ, right? They call us to do both. Um, but the Scriptures, when they call us to introspection, they're not calling us to uh, really ultimately wonder if we're a Christian, but to expand our love. For the Lord. Sadly, today, introspection, especially in uh, churches a little different than ours, but I guess we could be guilty of it as well, they, they encourage you to, to really be saved now, right? Maybe you weren't saved last week. Let's be saved this week. Let's trust in Christ for the first time. But what David is doing is he's drawing this one who knows the doctrine of verses 1 and 2, who knows what it is to be forgiven, not just in an intellectual sense, but has probably experienced it in the heart. He's calling on uh, this blessed one to examine himself so that he can walk in this blessed state again. But what causes this disruption? The first disruption is caused by silence. Silence, as good as silence can be in a home sometimes, silence spiritually is not good. The first half of verse 3 there, when I kept silence, right? that's when he begins to lay out what the issue was. Then he tells you what the effects of this silence were. When I kept silence, well, what happened? What happened, David, when you were silent? My bones waxed old. I, I, uh, I suffered, as it were, in my body. He was hurting because he was silent. And ultimately, we know this wasn't just that he wasn't talking, but that he was silent before the Lord. What a sad thing to describe oneself as, but it's true of us often, isn't it? We fail in prayer. We are silent before the Lord. 
And his bones, he says, waxed old. They, they felt old. He had pain in his body. And remaining silent before the Lord will do this. But your soul will give you no rest. He says, through my roaring all the day long. That pain in his soul led him to, it's as if he's saying to, to behave as an animal. That he was roaring because of his silence before the Lord, his failure to go before the Lord and speak. And we know that that's ultimately things like prayer and praise. Remaining silent before the Lord will bring you pain. And it may be a type of silence, but your soul, you know, will give you no rest. There is the roaring. And he gives you a further thing that happened because of this silence. He says, God's hand was heavy upon me. Not just part of the day, but day and night. Right? When you fall from this, this uh, communion with God, this walking with him as you should, his hand is heavy upon you. And this is felt all over, isn't it? When you remain silent before God, your soul is not silent. And you also know that God is not silent. He reminds you. Sometimes he reminds you through your children. You can go through dry phases spiritually. My son, the oldest, has done this several times. Daddy, we haven't done family worship in a few days. You know, you're right. We haven't. And that's a sad thing for me to say, but it happens. And even children can remind us of these things. Out of the mouth of babes, God shows forth praise. But there's another effect that he gives, and I love how uh, the King James phrases it. It's printed there in your bulletin from the King James. He says, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. If you have a, another translation, it probably does not say uh, moisture. If it does, it has something in the margin that it points to the word vitality or life. Now, this is quite the picture because they drew on uh, the more obvious phrase about the drought of summer, right? Does your soul ever feel as if it's in a drought, right? And then they drew that back into the word and said that that moisture, that life, had disappeared because of that silence. That that's what David is communicating. Because the drought of summer is a spiritual condition. The idea of life and vitality is communicated to the soul with the picture of moisture. It goes away when that silence is there. But David, what he does, thanks be to God in verse 5, he doesn't leave us there, he finds the way out. He acknowledged his sin to the Lord. Now notice he doesn't tell us what his sin is. But I think based on the context, we can say at least two things. As all sin begins with, it begins with first the silence, a failure to pray, right? If you've ever developed a pattern of sin in your life, has it been when you've been most at prayer? Probably not, right? So that is, I would argue, the first thing that David is pointing to, his own silence. And the second thing seems to be hinted at that he was hiding it, right? He was trying to go through the motions of life even as a king, as an aspiring king. I don't quite know when David wrote this psalm. But he was either about to be king or he was king. And he was trying to hide this condition before the Lord, probably going to the temple, making his offerings, going through these motions. But when he followed the Lord's commands on confession, 
He received forgiveness and he knew it. And the psalm bears witness to that. And this is another glorious reality. This is not just an Old Testament thing. Again, I pointed to the fact that Christ is abundantly present in this text and his atoning work on the cross, his imputation of our sins unto him so that we can experience this. But this glorious reality is for the Christian. It can be known that forgiveness is had, as David said towards the end of that verse there, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. He didn't wonder. He didn't wait. He knew. He was convinced through confession. Not because of some experience. He didn't say, I felt it in my heart. He just knew. Because God keeps his promises. And this is what God calls us to do throughout uh, the scriptures. One of the most plain places of it. And 1 John contains an abundance of wealth for us, uh, for the Christian life, for practical things. But at the end of 1 John 1, it contains some words that are almost too good to be true. And I think that we often even hold them at arm's glance or arm's, arm's distance. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, he forgives because he's faithful. Is it, is it that easy? I think it is. I don't believe the Bible lies, right? We like to, you know, bathe it in, well, if you really feel it, then God will really mean it. Well, no, friends, if you confess, that is, if you agree with God, that's what confession is. You're bearing witness to what he has declared over the situation. You're agreeing with him to heaven. He promises to forgive you and you can know it. Because he is trustworthy. This is what David experiences. It's what we experience through Christ. It's what David experienced through the anticipation of Christ. Friends, confession is one of the ways to assurance. It just is. It's plainly taught in Scripture. Psalm 32, 1 John 1, plenty of other places. But David then moves into in a Pauline way, he moves into doxology in the next two sentences. If you have a Bible open before you, it's verses 6 and 7, but if you're looking at the bulletin, I'm sorry, I still have not figured out a way to get those verses in there without making things, verse numbers in there without making it really uh, wonky looking. I'll figure it out eventually. Um, but when he says there uh, about midway down, for this, it's for this reason, Right? Because of his tra- uh, confessing his transgressions and knowing the forgiveness, because of all that we've just considered in those first few verses, because that is true, for this reason, everyone that is godly will pray unto you in a time when you may be found. Because you're faithful. Because you're trustworthy. Because you keep your promises. Because you tell us you will deal with our sins. Because you promise that in Christ... <coughs> Excuse me. You have dealt with our sins. We can go there to the prayer closet, to the service of the church. We confess our sins. Friends, you need to know we are actually confessing our sins. Right? It's not just, oh, pastor thinks this is a good idea in the service. It's a Christian thing to do. 
And everybody except a very small group of Christians have done it forever in their services. They confess their sins together because of God's promises in his word. This moves David to doxology, to praise, because God has forgiven his sins. Because God is faithful, everyone will pray to God in a time when he might be found. Surely even in this, the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. I won't belabor the point, but I've talked a few times recently about the power of water through these videos I've been watching about the North Sea. There's a reason water is so terrifying and why God chose it to communicate this reality of things like spiritual depression and temptation. In the floods of great waters, this man who practices confession, this blessed man, those great waters will not come so near to him that they will overcome him. Because God is David's hiding place. He is our hiding place. He will preserve us from trouble. And he compasses us about with songs of deliverance. We think about surrounding the Lord in praise, and we're called to do that in various places in Scripture. But have you ever thought of God surrounding you with songs? That he surrounds you with songs of deliverance because of the mercy that you've received at his hand. Thus far, David's doxology, this last little bit here, verses 8 to 11. It's part three of the the psalm, in my opinion. If if you were to break it up, I would break it up. Verses 1 to 2 is part 1. Part 2 is verses 3 to 5. And then part 3 is this last bit here, verses 8 to 11. And it is in this last portion that it appears that there is a new speaker. Because you'll notice... um, Again, this is one of the things I like about the King James. It communicates the distinction between singular and plural in the pronouns, other things as well. But when he says, I will instruct thee, a singular, who is talking to who? David's just received forgiveness. He's rejoiced in the Lord. Who is talking to who? Who is being instructed? Well, I would argue that David is being instructed by the Lord. That God is speaking here. That's why I said that it's a a peep, as it were, into a direct conversation between God and David that that God, by his Spirit, so graciously penned for us. David is still writing, of course, but it appears that the Lord is now speaking as if to say, look what happened to my servant David. He knew the doctrine, verses 1 and 2. He knew what a blessed man was. He knew how to explain salvation and what a holy life was. Yet he failed to practice. And he knew some significant discouragement and pain of soul, verses 3 to 4. But upon his repentance, look, 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 God says, and throwing off his silence, I faithfully forgave him. And then his praise of my name returned with doxology in verses 6 to 7. And he knew, as he says in Psalm 51, the joy of salvation once again. So when God as I would argue, speaks here in verses 8 to 11. He's speaking to those who see this conversation. Yes, he's speaking to David, but he's speaking to all of us, right? So put in your name there. I will instruct you. Singular. The is the old word for the singular, but we don't have it today. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. 
I will guide you with mine eye. Be not as those, or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. There's that word again, compass. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. He brings in the plural there a few times as well, but he opens it by speaking in the singular. God is instructing David, and he's instructing us in the way that we should go. So often we think of the way that we should go as like doing good works, and that's, that's true. But those things will never come if we are silent before God. And if we are silent before God, the pain and warning of Psalm 32 is there, but also the glorious grace of confessing our sins and receiving the certainty of assurance. So close with these three brief applications. There is always danger in doing exactly what David did. He knew the doctrine, verses 1 and 2, but he failed in the practice. He kept silence before God. He knew what to do, but he kept silence and sought to hide his sin before the Lord. The second thing, the practice that David failed at is at its most fundamental level, prayer. And you need to know, this is, I don't know if you find these things helpful, but I, I kind of store these phrases in my memory to wake me up sometimes when I'm struggling spiritually. Prayer is silence before God. Just say it over and over again to yourself. Or, excuse me. <laughs> silence is the absence of prayer before God. I said it wrong. Silence is the absence of prayer before God. Silence is the absence of prayer before God. When you feel compelled to pray at those times you normally pray or at those times you don't and you know you need to pray, will you choose silence? Right? It's just those ways of tossing things around in our minds that the Scripture gives us that can be so helpful. And last thing, the Lord, your teacher, is Jesus Christ himself. As I told you this morning in Sunday school and in the sermon, these things speak to the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is through him alone that we know this word and wisdom of God, that he is the word and wisdom of God. And these things are fully experienced as blessed men and women through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord and God, we...